I'm sorry to inform you as we begin the podcast that the end of the recording, because of a technical difficulty, did not get recorded. This sermon, Understanding the Prophetic Call, wraps up with Doug talking about critique and hope, the necessity of the prophetic gift having both, and if it doesn't have critique and hope, it becomes toxic. Doug also talks about the idea that prophecy disrupts your closest followers and friends, and without that, it might not be prophecy. Sometimes the prophet's call ends with renewal and refreshed faithfulness to God's work. Sometimes it leads to a cross. Throughout the sermon, Doug uses Oscar Romero as an example. He ends the sermon by saying that the harvest comes because the grain dies which is a quote by Oscar Romero right before he was assassinated. The harvest comes because the grain dies. So what does it look like? Understanding the prophet's call, may you take up your cross daily and follow him. Tonight's reading will come from Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 19. (laughs) The words of Jeremiah... The son of Hilkah, one of the priests living in Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. It also came throughout the days of Jechiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, but I protested, oh no, Lord God. Look, I don't know how to speak since I am only a youth. Then the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For you will go to everyone I send you to and speak whatever I tell you. Do not be afraid of anyone, for I will be with you to deliver you. This is the Lord's declaration. Then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and told me, I have now filled your mouth with my words. See, I have appointed you today over the nations and the kingdoms, to uproot and tear down, to destroy, to demolish, to build, and to plant. Then the word of the Lord came to me asking, what do you see, Jeremiah? I replied, I see a branch of an almond tree. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I watch over my word to accomplish it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me inquiring, what do you see? And I replied, I see a boiling pot, its lip tilted from the north to the south. Then the Lord said to me, disaster will be poured out from the north on all who live in the land. Indeed, I'm about to summon all the clans in the kingdoms of the north. This is the Lord's declaration. They will come and each king will set up his throne at the entrance of Jerusalem's gates. They will attack all her surrounding walls and all the cities of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments against them for all the evil they did when they abandoned me, to burn incense to other gods and to worship the works of their own hands. Now get ready, 
stand up and tell them everything that I commanded you. Do not be intimidated by them or I will cause you to cower before them. To the day I am the one who has made you fortified a city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall against the whole land, against the kings of Judah and its officials, its priests and the population. They will fight against you, but never prevail over you, since I am with you to rescue you. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord. When Oscar Romero was 13 years old, he decided to become a priest. And a dozen years of training followed. Uh, Romero was ordained, became a secretary in a rural diocese in El Salvador, and he ministered there faithfully for 23 years. He was conservative in both temperament and theology. He earned a reputation as a very shy, traditional priest. But in 1977, Oscar Romero was appointed to be the Archbishop of El Salvador. And the country was in the beginning phases of a brutal civil war at the time. The military was murdering and torturing anyone who dared resist the state-sponsored death squads that roamed the countryside. And when the bishop was appointed, the ruling powers of El Salvador were pleased because all the bishops at that point were pretty much supporting the status quo. In March of 1977, state agents murdered a young Jesuit priest who was one of Romero's closest friends. And the bishop went to see the body uh, in a chapel. And as he was looking over the murdered corpse of his friend, something shifted in him. And he realized that he could no longer be silent. He shocked his fellow priests. He shocked pretty much everyone in the country. He demanded that there be an investigation into the murder. He refused to go to the inauguration of the new president. He closed all the Catholic schools and demanded a hearing. Three of his fellow bishops immediately accused him of treason. At 59, this quiet bishop was close to retirement, but he chose, however, to embrace a call that changed his life forever. Instead of retiring, he became a prophet. And he criticized the brutality of a very oppressive regime and cast a vision for a hopeful future. One of the reasons why I share that story with you tonight is because God is still calling prophets today to speak into the needs of his people. What does that look like? How does God call a prophet to speak? Uh, What what is it like to respond to that call? I know that tonight is uh, perhaps not for everyone here because all of us are not called to be prophets. This sermon is specifically for those of you who are. But this sermon is also for those of us that are in community with prophets because one of the ways the prophetic gift is called out is by the body affirming and discerning it. So there's really two ways to listen to this sermon tonight. Well, the calling of the prophet Jeremiah provides a good case study when we try to think about 
how God calls a prophet. And as Chantel already read, uh, our, our, our story begins not with a phrase like uh, in a long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is not a myth. Uh, the, the author goes into great deal to, to say it's in this king's reign at this time when this was going on because the prophet is always called to speak to real people in a real world in a real time and place. This is about 625 B.C. It's during the reign of the last kings of Judah. You've got Babylon in the north, Egypt in the south. Babylon will come in and destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah will live to see that destruction. He will live to see life as he knows it come to an end. He is living in an odd time of both prosperity and anxiety. He says he's from a little town three miles outside of Jerusalem, and he's the son of a priest. And then he begins describing his call in verse 4. He says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, and most of the prophets, when they talk about their calling, they don't say, you know, I finished rabbinical school and I was taking this vocational test and there were four things I could do and profit came up first. The wages were good, there were good benefits, and I went that way. No, nobody really wants to be a prophet. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet. It comes from above. It comes from beyond. Jeremiah is seized by a calling, summoned by a power greater than himself that he cannot resist. There is this pulsating, living word of God that explodes in his soul and calls him to speak. And later he will say, sometimes I tell myself not to think about you, Lord, or even mention your name, but your message burns in my heart and bones and I cannot keep silent. That's what it means when the word of the Lord comes to you. The word of the Lord came to Bishop Romero as he stood over the casket of that young Jesuit priest and a fire kindled within him and he knew he had to speak. Does the word of the Lord come to you? He called you to speak? Now, during this series, we've been ending by the Wailing Wall, which by now everyone knows is not a shower. (laughs) Don't ask me. It's the Wailing Wall. You can see that. And one of the things that we've asked you to do is take a little card and write a shalom gap, an area where your heart is burdened over the difference between God's vision and the reality of what we're experiencing, and write it down, put it on the wall, and, and to pray about it. And some of us are called to prophesy about a shalom gap. Some of us are called to make known to the community, make known to the neighbors around us, this glaring gap between what is and what God wills. Not all of us. We're all called to do justice in different ways. Some of us are called to pray for justice. Some of us give generously to organizations seeking justice. Some of us provide pastoral care to those on the front lines of justice work. But some of us are called to prophesy and expose injustice. So I ask you again. 
Has the word of the Lord come to you? Well, you might be thinking, I'm not sure. What does that look like? Well, let's read on. God tells Jeremiah that he has planned this before he formed you in the womb. I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet of the nations. He, he is telling Jeremiah that this isn't about you, son. This is something that I have been dreaming about from all eternity, and I'm inviting you into it. This is not about what you are conjuring up. And Jeremiah's probably late teens at the time, and he, he says, Oh, Lord God, I, I don't know how to speak. I'm, I'm just a, a youth. And of course, in that culture, age was what qualified you to speak, and he doesn't have it. He knows that no one should listen to him because he's such a young man. And he says, oh, God, I can't do it. I'm not old enough. Just as Moses tells the calling God, I stutter since somebody else. Just as Isaiah says, I'm not pure enough. I have unclean lips since somebody else. Just as Amos says, I'm a rancher and a business guy. What are you thinking? You know, it seems like the only real qualification to be a prophet is that you're not qualified. Jeremiah bears this tension in a a profound way. He brings the word with great courage, but he also, he struggles, he suffers. At one point, he describes his calling as an incurable wound. That's not easy to bear. And I think that's why a prophetic calling is usually affirmed by others and reluctantly embraced. Nobody feels worthy of it. The Lord said, don't say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Again, this is not a democracy. God says, look, son. I'm going to tell you what to say and you're going to go say it. Got it? The prophetic calling is a journey in obedience to God. Shortly after his friend was murdered, Bishop Romero started a radio broadcast. It uh, began at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning on station WSAX. And he went on the air and he named the victims of the death squads that week. He reported uh, public officials who disappeared. He called for investigations and then he would preach for as long as an hour. And those sermons are now uh, available in, in books. His radio station was bombed after the air several times, but he always came back. And at the peak of his ministry, three-fourths of the rural population of El Salvador was tuning in on Sunday morning. God commanded, and the bishop spoke. Now, sometimes God calls prophets to speak to nations. He calls a Jeremiah. He calls a Martin Luther, a Martin Luther King, a Romero. But most of the prophets quietly live out their calling in communities like this, and we never know their names. What might prophetic speech look like among us? I thought for a moment about things that I've observed over the years. Here's just some examples. A photographer who takes poignant pictures of our homeless neighbors and exhibits them with their names. 
The professor speaks to Senator Alexander about health care reform. A poet posts a lament about a refugee. A painter creates a wall mural that envisions a peaceful community. A writer blogs honestly about what it is like to follow Christ as a gay Christian. A mom joins her neighborhood association to advocate for her vulnerable neighbors. A student brings a prophetic word to his pastor speaking into the future of the church. An older man prophesies over a younger man in a time of prayer, calling out his gifts and encouraging him to join God's work in the world. A couple creates a theater company in order to speak to our community through plays. God speaks and the prophet obeys. What if the prophet does not obey? What if God is summoning you and calling you and working in your heart and the word is burning alive and you decide, no, I will not? Read the book of Jonah. Okay, next. (laughs) Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver them, declares the Lord. This is the hard part of being a prophet. People often don't like you. They often don't write you thank you notes. Jeremiah faced a lot of discouragement in his prophetic ministry. At one point he prays after delivering a word, being rejected. He says, heal me, O Lord. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. And he says, my heart's broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunk. I'm like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord, because of his holy words. And you see this give and take all through the book where the the prophet is just wrestling with God over this calling. The poor guy's thrown into a well. He's sentenced to die. A king burns his scroll. He'd call him a traitor. And instead of that balance between encouragement and hope, I mean, criticism and hope, it seemed to get darker and darker and more and more focused on critique. And at times, I would sit with the prophets and I would feel that God was very angry with me, but he would never tell me why. As if he were a passive-aggressive, abusive father, leaving me to guess. And that became so painful that I left the prophetic ministry for many years. God seems to be reawakening that gift um, among us. And I, I think it's, it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. Ephesians 4 says it's one of five different gifts that God gives to lay the foundation of the church. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. And somehow, and this isn't the sermon for it, but somehow I I just sense some things maybe shuffling around a little bit in our church. And as you step into your giftings more and more, and we all bring our gifts to the table and step into what the future is for us. But if we're going to walk in the prophetic, let's always remember to balance critique with hope. Critique with hope. If that was true in the Old Covenant, how much more in the grace-based New Covenant? A prophetic word should always leave us believing more deeply in God, 
and more hopeful in his promises. Well, in the rest of the chapter, Jeremiah shares those two promises. He has two visions, and I don't think this is always the case, but uh, people that have this gift often uh, have visions. They see things, and I, I think that's one of the ways God speaks to prophets. And, and uh, Jeremiah has two. The first one is an almond branch. Uh, in Jerusalem, the almond branch was the first branch to uh, bear leaves after wintertime. And so it seems to be a, a hopeful vision that God eventually is going to lead Jerusalem into springtime. The second vision is of a boiling pot spilling out over the city. That one's a vision of judgment. See, again, critique, judgment, and hope. And then God concludes those two visions by stepping back in and saying to Jeremiah, you know, they're going to fight against you, but they're not going to prevail against you, for I'm with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. And this is something that we have to remember. Genuine prophetic ministry it does not always go with the grain of the community. Now, I think there are different kinds of prophetic ministry. I think 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 5, talks about a kind of prophetic ministry that is very helpful in body life, where the primary purpose, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, is edification, encouragement, and comfort. I think there's a very powerful prophetic ministry that way. But there's also a broader function that cuts against the grain, and it hurts, and you get pushback. The theologian Sharon Hody Miller wrote an interesting post recently, and she argues that if I stand up here and I say hard things to you that you all agree with, and when I'm preaching, and the hotter I get, the more you're going, yes, yes, that's not prophecy. If you agree with me, it's not prophecy, it's teaching. Real prophecy is when someone brings a word to his or her own community and the community goes, whoa. And I'm going to quote a paragraph or quote a couple paragraphs at length because I thought it was very interesting. She says, more often prophecy disrupts the particular audience God has given you, the audience that trusts you, follows you, and considers you an authoritative voice. If you're attempting to disrupt some audience out there, then you're more likely shouting to the wind or toppling straw men. But if you're stepping on the toes of your closest followers, then you're probably more in line with the prophetic tradition. Great. In my own context, my audience is mostly female, and in the world of the evangelical women's ministry, the status quo is, quote, positive and encouraging. Messages for women are big on self-help being enough, and speaking affirmation. This is an all but unspoken standard, and for years I followed it. I didn't want to lose followers by talking about controversial subjects. Instead, I opted for a manicured Instagram profile and inspiring quotes on my Facebook page. People like positive, so that was what I wrote. But this year I realized the prophetic impotence of self-help messages. Encouragement does have its place, but as I considered the state of women's ministry and the disciples we were making, I realized something. Knowing you are, quote, beautiful will not embolden you to acts of true courage. 
At its heart, these messages are fundamentally about us, which means they are powerless to resist a narcissistic culture. This has been a sobering realization for me. It forced me to ask whether I was contributing to the formation of women who would actually take up Christ's cross and follow him, or was I nurturing a generation of women who felt great about themselves but were totally unequipped to lay down their lives out of love for God and neighbor? Those are the questions that have been keeping me up at night. This is the challenge facing evangelical women. The pressure to be nice competes with the calling to be prophetic. Women are not the only ones facing this struggle. For every article about making money with your blog or having a better marriage, we need leaders who are leveraging their authority with their particular audience to call people to rugged faithfulness. We need teachers who are targeting the idols of people-pleasing in politics and worldly success and keeping us, helping us to be the actual people of God. And we need pastors engaged in the kind of spiritual formation that resists cultural influence and prepares believers for loving self-sacrifice. Sometimes this kind of prophetic ministry will lead to transformation and renewal. Sometimes it leads to a cross. In 1979... Four more Salvadoran priests were assassinated. The peasant death toll rose to 3,000 a month. And all 80,000 Salvadorans would be slaughtered. 300,000 would disappear and never be seen again. A million would flee their homeland. An additional million would become homeless. And on March 23, 1980, after reporting the previous week's deaths and disappearances, Romero began in his sermon address, to speak directly to Christians who were serving in the military and in the police. And he said, Brothers, you are from the same people. You kill your fellow peasants. No soldier is obliged to obey an order that's contrary to the will of God. In the name of God, in the name of the suffering people, I ask you, I implore you, I command you, in the name of God, stop. The following evening, while performing a Mass in the Chapel of Divine Providence. Archbishop Oscar Romero was shot to death by a paid assassin. And only moments before his death, he had said these words to his congregation. Those who surrender to the service of the poor through love of Christ will live like the grain of wheat that dies. The harvest comes because the grain dies. Prophetic ministry does not inevitably end in martyrdom. Let us not fool ourselves, though. Christianity is hard. Living out our countercultural faith will not always be a popular thing to do. So it's time for the church to embrace her prophetic nature once again. In the words of Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, He puts it like this. I believe the crisis in the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has everything to do with giving up on the faith and discipline of our Christian baptism and settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. Let's pray. 